0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, November 8th, 2006. This is your host, Stephen Novella, President of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everyone. Rebecca Watson. Hello. Perry DeAngelis. Good evening. And Jay Nobella. Yo-ho. Good evening, everyone. Hey, uh, Steve. What's up? Steve,
0: how are you tonight?
1: Excellent, excellent. Better than Kent Hovind, that's for
0: sure. Yo-ho. Zing. <laughs> you guys have heard about his woes. He's <laughs> got some legal issues. Hey, come on. He's not guilty. <laughs> he's convicted by definition. He's guilty.
2: <laughs> that's right.
3: <laughs> also considered a danger to, his, to the community...
1: In case you didn't notice that. He is a pr- clear and present danger and yep. a flight risk. Yep. For those of you who may not know, Kent Hovind is a prominent young Earth creationist. So he thinks the the entire universe was made a few thousand years ago.
2: Founder of Dino Land, is a Yep, he's, he has the nickname of
1: Dr. Uh, Dino because he has a fake Ph.D. from an unaccredited university. Don't we all? Christian education. He's got that amusement park. That, uh, and he has that Christian, creationist amusement park. Yeah, that's... <laughs> uh, so he's, uh, you know, about as uh, <sighs> nutty as they come in the creationist camp. You know, as creationists are concerned, he is at the, the the absurd end of the spectrum, which is saying something.
3: Kind of like the butt psychic that we were talking about last week. He is...
1: The, the bottom of the barrel the bottom of the barrel of, but he's but he's been very prominent going around you know debating evolutionists and you know he goes beyond just a bread and butter creationism he has some really outlandish theories about you know how to explain all of the the geological formations that scientists say took millions of years so he basically has this um frozen comet theory which is a way to explain the, um, the solar system and the geological formations on the Earth with one major catastrophe. So it's basically a return to sort of classic catastrophism where, you know, again, it was thought that all of the features of the Earth could be explained by catastrophic events and then that was replaced by the notion that, well, just ordinary everyday act, uh, processes extrapolated over millions of years could explain things like the Grand Canyon. But, of course, that that runs contrary to the young Earth uh, view of things, so he's trying to come up with these really far-fetched notions about, you know, these exploding comets and how that could that could explain everything, like the Grand Canyon.
4: How, how does an exploding comet explain the Grand Canyon?
1: Oh, well, it's
0: really oh, complicated. <laughs> Steve. He also offers a uh, a quarter million to anyone who can prove. Oh, is that him? That yeah. That evolution is the only possible way that life evolved life exists. Yeah, on it's,
1: it's you know, a mockery of Randy's Million Dollar Psychic Challenge, and it's, uh, which many people have imitated that. But, of course, his criteria are impossible to meet. It's like a single piece of evidence that proves evolution. You know, It's just an impossible right. criteria. It's just a stunt. It's an insincere stunt is what it is.
4: And if you want to take him up on that, you have to go to jail and visit him to do it. That's so right. Now, the, be even now, tougher.
1: He he's been having some legal difficulties because he decided that he dis, should not have to pay taxes. Now you might think that he's basing this entirely on the fact that he is a minister and that he should be tax exempt, and it is largely based upon that. But in addition, he is also he also has uh, these beliefs that taxes are um, illegal, unconstitutional. There there is a you know a, a small group of people who. Think that
2: including Wesley Snipes, including Wesley Snipes, that
1: the government doesn't have <laughs> the right to tax us
2: Wesley Snipes. Said, yeah, they're hunt- they trying to hunt him down right now. He's really? overseas.
3: Yeah, he's overseas. You can't catch uh, Wesley Snipes. Didn't they yeah. see the fugitive part two?
2: <laughs> <laughs> the dude is unstoppable. But is Perry, when you just, say like,
0: hunt, are you are you serious? Like
2: hunt, yeah, like they, guys? He, be- he, he cannot right now come back to the United States. Tommy Lee Jones is dragging his ass down. Loser. (laughs) He he, he got involved with some people who convinced him that taxes were illegal and, you know, that was uh, it. it. It's a deliberate political
1: statement. He's not just trying to cheat on his taxes.
2: Yeah,
0: because this country is run on snowflakes. (laughs) Right. Well,
4: back, back to Dr. Dino. So this guy could face a maximum of 288 years in prison.
1: Wow.
3: Yeah, what are the chances that he's going to serve them all
0: concurrently, wow. though? Right in, in hell, end. buddy. That guy sucks. He's well, a total bozo.
4: He not only sucks; his dance his dance card's are going to be filled every night. Oh yeah, right until there.
2: <laughs> Woohoo! Couldn't happen to a nicer guy, right? In other news, a filmmaker,
1: R.J. Thomas, is producing a a parody of the cheesy UFO documentaries from the 1970s and 80s called. The Top Secret UFO Project. I guess that's kind of a generic enough name. And I, I, it seems as if this is going to be uh, largely about the, the ideas of Gordon Cooper. Um, Gordon Cooper was uh, an astronaut in the U.S. space program, was the first person to orbit the Earth twice. Uh, and he is a, a strong believer in UFOs. And he believed that he saw UFOs while in orbit. It's interesting. Whenever you read uh, a lot of the the uh, news articles about Cooper, he always sort of prominently uh, portray that you know he, if anyone should know about UFOs, he would because he's been in outer space. And, yeah, and yeah, right. What exa- yeah. It's like it's a it's a it's kind of a Ar- a lame argument from authority. <laughs> no, it's right. a good
3: point. I mean, I've I've been to the beach, and that's why I'm technically
1: um, a marine biologist. Well, that's right. Yeah, uh, and I know <laughs> how to swim, so I'm an expert on the Loch Ness monster. There you
0: go. Steve, didn't he say on TV that, um, you know, that all the astronauts are covering up sightings and government conspiracy yeah, garbage? Yeah, yeah.
1: You I mean you have to believe in u the, in the government cover up if you're a UFO aficionado these days? Uh, those two things go hand in hand.
2: Yeah, fits in nicely. I think
0: it's funny though that all the rigorous testing that they put them through. I know it's an immense amount of physical testing. It's also an enormous amount of Emotional uh, stress testing, and you know i 'm sure that to become an, an astronaut, you have to be fairly intelligent, but this guy 's you know made it through all of the um, all of those rigors and, and he still is a total baboon well
1: you, you, since you bring it up you know intelligence doesn 't really correlate with belief in the uh, right. in science over the over the pseudoscience actually in, in general, greater intelligence positively correlates with belief in the supernatural or pseudoscience. So more intelligent people are more likely to believe in things than UFOs. Why is that? Uh, you know, it's hard, that's a very interesting question. I'm not sure it's been definitively answered. I think the reasonable speculation is that you, you, you have to have a certain amount of you know curiosity and thoughtfulness to even think about things like are we being you know uh, visited by aliens. Uh, and I also think that um, getting a general education – Getting a popular sort of science education—it's just not enough these days. And in fact, until you really get to a like a postgraduate expert level in some topic, uh, it, it doesn't—you know—the education that you get really won't prepare you to separate science from pseudoscience unless you have skeptical training. You know, unless you know how to actually think about these things and and become knowledgeable of the ways in which. We deceive ourselves. The pitfalls of of logic that we tend to fall into. So you could be extremely intelligent and still be a total credulous, you know. Ass. That's
2: actually a good uh, segue to our next story, Steve. That's true.
1: Speaking of which, I'll, I'll take you up on that, Perry. So the next next news item is about a an academic uh, who is a Bigfoot believer. Uh, this is a professor from idaho jeffrey meldrum he holds a phd in anatomical in the anatomical sciences so this is actually a phd which is relevant to the uh somewhat relevant to the the topic at hand and he is a believer in sasquatch the bigfoot
2: a big believer a big believer uh, as you said steve he's a phd and uh, yeah he's you know he is one of the foremost voices on Bigfoot. He, he brings a you know a patina of science to the the study of uh, the Sasquatch, which has made him very famous in that community. And, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, uh, as as you might well imagine.
1: In any fringe community like that, if you have a real scientist who
4: endorses your beliefs, I mean, they're celebrities. They're
1: instant he's, celebrities. He's
4: lionized by these
2: guys. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but
4: I mean, it, there's a funny there's a quote here from this article. Uh, what really got him going? Uh, he discovered a. It says here, flat, fifteen-inch footprint in the woods, and uh, he said he thought initially that they were a hoax, but he noticed locked joints and a narrow arch, traits he came to believe could only belong to Bigfoot. I mean, those are those are you know his great b- bits of evidence that got him right. started on this—the <laughs> locked right. joints and a narrow arch. I mean, what?
2: From what I can tell, definitely. I mean, his his main uh, thing that he studies are these plaster casts. He has hundreds of them. Yeah. Of these footprints, right? And that's hey. a
1: that's a classic example, uh, logical fallacy wise, of uh, post hoc reasoning, and it's basically what we call taking the evidence. You know, it's like comparing it to somebody like shooting randomly at the side of a barn, and then going up to the bullet hole and drawing the target around the hole. So that's what he's doing. He's looking at this. It's not as if this has already been established as you know the, these these features, the the toe joints, uh, as features which validate a legitimate footprint. He, after he saw these features, he decided afterwards, and this is with a post hoc part, that this made, made it more realistic or more believable. So again, he's just drawing the target around whatever happened to be there. Well,
3: what if the footprints aren't uh, able to be made by any other existing animal that we know of? I mean, that would be fair if he found a completely unique footprint and was trying to figure out what it belonged to
4: yeah, but it, it, does it belong to an actual animal, or does it belong to a mold that somebody made and is yeah, trying a wood to
2: carving. mimic it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've all seen the films of guys dressed in Big Feet running through the right. snow, you know, and, and there, making and the footprints.
1: Another example of the post hoc reasoning. Another uh, believer, you know, uh, was very convinced by the fact that there were hairs embedded in the footprint. He said, "Well, how did those hairs?" Get there, or you stepped uh, on them? somebody put them there, or and in, in, the, in, the, in a previous <laughs> podcast, we spoke about the the ridges, the dermal ridges. The dermal, so these, yeah. these dermal ridges can't be faked, and the guy said, "Well, I kind of just stuck my thumb in the mud and <laughs> left the dermal ridges there." So, you, so it's, it's like it's, you know, it's like any magic trick. It's so simple and stupid and silly if you know how it's done. And it's, again, that's like the argument from ignorance: not knowing how the ridges got there, not knowing you know why this footprint has the features that it has, it leads to the conclusion that it must be genuine. It's like saying, I don't know how this magic trick is done. It must be real magic. It's the same sort of argument from ignorance. You need need to have some sort of positive correlation. uh, You need to establish independently that these features um, correlate with genuine footprints and not with hoaxed or faked footprints, but that's what doesn't exist, and that's where this guy's reasoning falls down, despite his study of anatomy.
0: You couldn't talk him out no, of this belief. No you, way. Couldn't, you couldn't show him with any kind of uh, research or science that he is drawing false conclusions. Um, well, apparently he would stand you know, the
2: ridicule of his fellow academics at the university. Which is qu- quite significant. <laughs> they want to know if he's going to start studying Santa Claus it's, next.
4: It's human psychology. He's so invested in this that he can't conceive of of giving up this belief. I when somebody's into it that much, you can't, they really can't they they can't psychologically handle, you know, going back, you know.
1: He has a lot invested in this. So, I mean, I have never tried to talk him out of it, so I I don't know. We can give him the benefit of the doubt, but it, it it is certainly rare in our experience that somebody sees the light and will will reverse themselves in such a controversial opinion. Speaking of his uh, the fellow scientists at his university, they they are very very critical of him. Uh, one of them you know, quoted in this article, one of his colleagues called Martin Hackworth, and he wrote, Do I cringe when I see uh, cable television Discovery Channel and I see Idaho State University, Jeff Meldrum? Yes, I do, Hackworth said. He believes he's taken up the cause of people who have been shut out by the scientific community. He's lionized there. He's worshipped. He walks on water. It's embarrassing. So, yeah, his colleagues are just, frankly, embarrassed by it, and they shun him for that reason, However, I I have to say I I think that we need to be careful not to criticize him for studying Bigfoot because then you uh, basically make it – unacceptable for legitimate scientists to you know try to shine the light of science on these controversial claims. I mean, I could get criticized, you know, because I right, that's with, what
3: I was trying to issues. get at like if his actual claim was that Bigfoot exists or is he just Yes. Studying he, no, he's a but, but, believer. Yes, but
1: he says yes, he is absolutely convinced that he exists. That the, the, the evidence exist. proves his existence. So, and that's my point, that should be criticized. Right. His right. logic, his scholarship, the, the his science. Not just the fact that he's studying
4: this this claim, or, the, or right. I mean, you could think he's wasting his time, you know, but you can't really say.
1: Right.
2: Well, it also brings up, of course, the whole question of tenure. And and mm-hmm. and you know once you're tenured, you know it's a, it's a it's a very deep protection and hard to get around. I mean the the dean who runs the college that he's a part of, uh, John Kaczynski, said he's a bona fide scientist. There's, there's a quote. I think he helps this university. He provides a forum of open discussion and dissenting viewpoints that may not be popular with the scientific community. But that's what academics is all about. Right. So says his dean. Um. Okay. You know, but uh, where do you draw the line? I mean, I, say, I would
1: say okay, but you can't give him a pass on the poor quality of his scholarship in science because he's right. studying something that's that's controversial or fringe. You have to hold him to the same standard. And when you do, his conclusions are bunk. And that's what needs to be criticized. It's an important distinction to make.
2: I, I agree. One last point about this particular guy is um, he got on the uh... jacket of his new book sasquatch legend meets science he got a uh, blurb from Jane Goodall. Yeah, yeah who, who's terrible. a world famous authority on on African chimps and uh a spokesman uh for Miss Good, uh, Goodall said as a scientist she's very curious and she keeps an open mind. She's fascinated by it. Yeah, but, she once said
3: in an, in an interview that um she hopes that that something like Bigfoot exists just because it it's an exciting idea. Yeah. Um but she's never said that there's any evidence to that. Right. In fact, she she said that there's no evidence to that. She just it's just something that she would like to believe. Right? But didn't She's she bring forward to that. one
4: of his books? Uh, yes.
3: Anna? Did she? I haven't yes. read it. Yes.
2: Yes, um, that's correct. Okay.
4: That, that so, one, She went down a couple of notches in my.
1: Well, I think that's, you know, I, I file it under just the naivete of working scientists who've never dealt with pseudoscience or the paranormal or the yeah. fringe. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. You know, that wouldn't it be cool if there was something like a Sasquatch? And they just have yeah. absolutely no idea of the horrifically terrible scholarship that's being done in these areas. And so they may naively ex- appear to accept it or naively lend Uh, They're imprimatur to these endeavors when they don't really intend to endorse pseudoscience. So I think she was probably just innocent in in that regard.
2: I I think we can conclude this with, with the concluding quote from this guy in the article. Is the theory of exploration dead? I'm not out to proselytize that Bigfoot exists. I place legend under scrutiny, and my conclusion is absolutely Bigfoot exists. Well, that's it. He's that's not being stand. coy. That's right. No, that's, 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 that's well, it. What's
4: his, what's his best evidence? I mean, he, he cites evidence of I mean, not only footprints, but DNA and, and feces and hair. Uh, well, maybe not DNA, but the, the article does mention uh, hair and feces. But, okay,
2: yeah. you've got hair
4: and feces. What does the DNA tell you? I mean, what, what's his smoking gun? It's not mentioned. He doesn't have any. There it says he hopes exactly. one day to
2: bring back a bone or a tooth or some skin. The right. silent, stuffy academics. Right, but but yet, he doesn't
4: have it yet. Right, but yet he still declares that Bigfoot absolutely exists. Yeah, Without that's that true. evidence, he's still saying that, and to me, that makes no sense.
1: Right, right. He's making claims which overstep the evidence. Right. That's a that, that's a big no-no in science. He's writing checks that his science can't get. <laughs> right, right. Exactly, exactly. exactly. Let's right. leave it on that. There's a, a study from German researchers. The title of this article, I love it, is Learn While You Sleep, which is – very misleading, but uh, Bob, why don't you tell right. us about this?
4: Yeah, this is this is pretty interesting. Uh, as, as you said, Steve, a sleep research team in Germany has found that a specific type of memory can be improved if an electric current stimulates the brain during sleep. Jan Born of the University of uh, Lubbock and his colleagues based their research on, a, on an accumulating body of evidence that one of the purposes or perhaps side effects of REM and non-REM sleep is to strengthen the neuronal connections involved in memory. Now REM sleep, I'm sure a lot of you know, REM sleep stands for rapid eye movement and it's characterized by vivid dreams, uh, paralysis and very active uh, brain cortex. Non-REM is the 80% of the other parts of sleep that involves usually no dreams, uh, a lot of body movement, you're you're, you're tossing and turning and moving and uh, very slow synchronized waves that travel across the surface of the brain. Now, re- relatively little is known about non-REM sleep, uh, REM sleep gets all the press, it's the most interesting phase of sleep, uh, you can make that argument, it's, it's when you have dreams. So the, the relatively there's not that much known about non-REM sleep, and it was his team's hypothesis that this stage served as a sort of covert replay of what was learned the previous day. So to test his hypothesis, hypothesis he got 13 medical student volunteers, and he had them perform two different types of memory tasks, and this is this is key to to his findings. One was learning a list of word pairs. This tests um, what's called declarative memory, which involves facts, memories that that we're conscious of, things that you you learn and memorize and can consciously recall it well. The other test was a finger-tapping exercise, and that that involves what's called procedural memory, and that includes motor skills, memories that involve the unconscious mind, if you will. Uh, They then put 13 electrodes on the 13 volunteers, and they stimulated their brains with a mild current, nothing... Nothing jolting enough to actually wake you up, and these people weren't even actually aware if they were being tested or not. And what they found was that the memories improved up to 8% only when the current applied matched the naturally occurring slow-wave frequency of, of non-REM sleep. Also, only the fact-based memories improved, not the motor-based skills. They, they did not improve. So this suggests a link between non-REM sleep and fact-based or, or declarative memory. Which, right. uh, which I thought was very interesting. Now, a few people, a few people reviewed the work. Um, Terry uh, Signowski, uh, professor, head of computational neurobiology at the Salk Institute, and he said this study provides evidence that the link between sleep and memory is causal and may lead to a practical way to improve memory. A little more pessimistic is Robert uh, Stickgold. He's a neurobiologist at Harvard. He does not foresee a future in which people can keep brain stimulators by their bedside tables. Uh, he concedes that the idea is, is way cool, uh, but he suspects that evolution has already done a pretty good job of optimi- optimizing brain activity during sleep. Yeah. Tweaking it further isn't going to do all that much good for you. Now, okay, fine. Well, wh- why, why does he say that? How does he know tweaking it isn't, you know, isn't going to do isn't going to do much? I mean, how do you know?
1: I, I think it's you know so, I think it's reasonable to be cautious in that I regard. Well, I mean, there's I agree. there's two there's two things you derive from this. One is just what does it tell us about the neurology of sleep and memory, right? And that's very interesting. This is not the first study which has established a link between sleep and memory. It's pretty clearly established at this point that right. one mm-hmm. of the functions of sleep is to consolidate, reinforce, strengthen what we learned, experienced, and learned the day before. If you if people get sleep deprived. That impairs their ability right. to learn and, and to remember things.
4: But yeah, but not only that. I mean, they've they've augmented memory. I mean, that that's that's an interesting. Uh, it's change.
1: true. It, it, you know, eight percent is not dr- is not dramatic, and and it may not be sustained. Yeah, we we see these kind of small effects all the time, and they don't always lead to something that has a specific clinical that's application absolutely. that's going to make make an actual functional or measurable that's difference. True. Ultimately, so that's why I think it, it's reasonable to be cautious before we start to extrapolate into you know actual applications i agree but but we don't know but we, we don't know at this right. point. right it's just that one point.
4: comment that evolution has already done a pretty good job of optimizing brain activity i mean that seemed to be a little going a little bit too f- farther than, than he should have gone but still it's an it's interesting research and it you know elucidates more about uh about memory and sleep right
3: i just enjoy his uh imagery of everybody having a
4: a brain yeah. stimulator next to the yeah, bed.
3: Right. I don't know if I, if I have enough room in
4: my nightstand. You got other stimulators there, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> the only other thing I wanted to note about this topic is that, you know, th- there was a lot of pseudoscience Tapes and techniques and whatever, basically trying to sell the notion that you can learn effortlessly while you're sleeping. And that right. has absolutely nothing to do with, th- with this science oh, or with these ab- kinds yeah, of studies. Absolutely. And th- there is no evidence that your brain can absorb, process, and learn information while you're sleeping. So
0: don't buy the tapes right. that right. promise <laughs> to
1: reorganize your brain waves and all that. That's all <laughs> nonsense.
0: However, if you do want to increase your memory, you, you need to practice your memory.
1: Well, like, is, everything else, one way. Yep. like everything else, like everything else, you use it, it will get better. You don't use it, it, it atrophies. One last news item before we move on to your emails: uh, a, a dolphin was discovered that has the remains of what, what may be the remains of hind legs. Uh, now, norm, dolphins normally they have their front uh, flippers and they have. Their tail. The tail is is an extension of, you know, evolved from what was their spine uh, and their actual tail as a terrestrial animal. Their their flippers are their forelimbs, and they essentially have lost their hind limbs, uh, although they do have these little pelvic structures, which are probably the remnants of their hind limbs, and is a good example of uh, of an evolutionary sort of residual structure. However, now they've discovered a, a, a dolphin that has hind flippers, and uh, the, the which is an interesting, you know, piece of evolutionary evidence. Uh, it says a couple of things. You know, one is that it reinforces this notion that single mutations can cause the appearance or disappearance of entire structures. Uh, so obviously, you know, this you know, dolphin did not have a mutation. Did not have an entire set of mutations, all of which created, you know, the information for these hind flippers that do not exist in, in in normal dolphins. Normal dolphins have the information in their DNA for these hind flippers; they're just it's just turned off. This dolphin had a mutation that you know, probably switched on the, uh, the 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 genes for the hind flippers, and then then he gets these. Yeah, you know, relatively fully formed hind flippers.
3: The ramifications of this are terrifying. I mean, dolphins as you know, as everyone knows, are the second most intelligent animals on the planet, just one step above humans. So now that they're going to have legs, I mean, that's that's scary. <laughs> one step below humans, you I mean? <laughs> no, no, above. It goes mice, dolphins, humans. Come yes. on,
0: I'm not the nerdiest nerd here. You, you can, guys get that. Steve, do you know if they x-rayed the... um? The
1: appendages. I haven't seen any detailed uh, anatomical. It said they're taking yet. them.
2: They're keeping them yeah. at the lab, and they're going to be doing all sorts of tests, DNA and. DNA, et obviously it'd be, be, yeah, obviously,
1: be be useful. And there are other examples of this of uh, structures which uh, you know, can come out in single mutations. There are, are. I mean, Gould wrote an excellent article about horses' toes and hens' teeth. You know, birds still have the genetic information to grow teeth. They're, they're just turned off, and you can, if you can figure out a way to switch them on, which researchers have done, then they'll grow teeth. Why would, why would hens have the DNA for teeth if they didn't
4: evolve from right, pictures that had exactly. teeth? Right, exactly. I mean, that's uh, such a great and, uh, a great uh, bit of evidence right I there. I bet you Mr.
2: That. Hovind would have an answer for that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Yeah.
1: And <laughs> horses, which evolved from many-toed mammals, could, eventually there are recidivistic or back, you know, mutations which can cause a, a horse to grow with a couple of extra toes coming out the back of his leg, you know, f- somewhat formed. So the, again, those uh, there are there are genes which control the way things develop, and there are also genes for enti- that turn on and off entire coordinated suites of genes which is it's really it is critical to understand that and really to, in order to understand how evolution pro, you know progresses and also to understand a lot of the evidence that we can see in in living animals you know for their their evolutionary history and this is a good an excellent example of it that I thought was worth talking about
4: steve i mean do do you foresee a time when in the future when we could uh i mean when when our you know our knowledge of the of genomes of of animals and maybe even the proteomes uh I mean, imagine if we could actually examine I mean, all the DNA and say, "All right, here's you know, here's here's the DNA that codes for you know these non-existent structures that don't that no longer exist," and just get a huge dictionary of all these structures that just aren't. That aren't expressed anymore. I mean, yeah. a huge list. I mean, wouldn't that be interesting to see that? You know, well, here's you know, here's a tail, and here's and here's the hind legs, and here's all this stuff that just
1: aren't it is finite. Anymore. I don't see
2: why you couldn't do that, Bob. It, it will definitely happen. Yeah, it's just that a matter would,
1: of time. It's
4: another yeah. little bit of uh, you know, why is all this stuff here if uh, if they didn't? And evolve?
1: Um, imagine the day when we can make uh, completely artificial genomes, when we could basically design a creature genetically from scratch.
2: The, the
3: thing about turning on and off certain, uh, certain genomes um, is interesting because there were, there was, there's been a lot of study recently about um, animals that regenerate limbs, and I know that researchers are looking into uh, finding the same gene in humans and hoping to turn that on, so yeah. That yeah, we could do that, yeah. Shouldn't uh-huh.
4: we just be putting like $3 billion into that research? I mean, how awesome would that be?
0: Steve, do you know how um there's there's uh like the appendix is an organ that we don't need anymore i you've heard people say we've um you know we evolved away from needing it, right? Are there any things in the brain that exist like that? Parts of the brain. Well we only
2: know. use ten percent of the brain, Jay. So there's <laughs> yeah. about ninety percent of it some that some evolved us. beyond
4: uh, unless you know how to tap into it.
2: <laughs> that's right. That's
1: that's a good question. <laughs> I, I'll I'll have to think about yeah, that, that, is, that is a good question. Off, off the top of my head, I think the answer is no. There is no vestigial part portion of the, brain, of the brain, yeah, that I that I can think of. There are parts of the brain that are redundant because you have basically you have it on the same, on two sides of the brain. So if you lose one, the other side can pretty well take over for it. But that's just because we have you know two hemispheres. Uh, Some of our abilities are lateralized, and some are bilateral, are on both sides, and so there is some redundancy, but there is no vestigial piece of the brain. It would make no sense, though,
4: because it's uh, the brain uses so much energy that it wouldn't make sense to have a a part of it that sucks up so much energy that just doesn't do anything. It's too easy to uh, to to take that, you know, to take that piece of the brain and and have it rewire itself to do something else that you do need, something like that, much more so than say an organ. You know, that's a
1: really good point. You know, the way the brain develops, it also develops with use. So right. you know, as you use your brain as it's developing, that's the brain sort of develops stimulated by that use. And if you if you like if, for example, if you blindfolded an infant and, and they actually used to do this, you know, in one eye or the other to try to fix a lazy eye. Uh-huh. But if you did that and you deprived the brain of the visual feedback, well the visual cortex would not get that feedback and wouldn't develop and that tissue would just get Co opted by some for some other reason for right. some other purpose it, it wouldn't you know quote unquote go to waste
0: or be or be vestigial right so the brain is truly malleable yeah oh,
1: absolutely. absolutely it's called plasticity and the plasticity is almost complete during the development phase i mean it's like hundred percent plasticity it 's an astounding organ that brain absolutely it's it is incidentally the why our brain can contain more information than the genes that code for right. it as the brain develops it actually is is increasing the amount of information that it contains in that process. Well, let's move on to some of your questions and email. The first one comes from Bart Farkas from Cochrane, Alberta in Canada. And Bart writes... I listen to your podcast weekly. I am an active skeptic, as you are. Anyhow, I am wondering about this Edgar Casey fellow. So many people point to him as being a true psychic, and the anecdotal claims seem impressive. He even seems to have not benefited financially from his abilities, which is also an interesting wrinkle. That said, I don't believe it. I am just wondering who, if anyone, has completed any comprehensive skeptical review of Edgar Casey's abilities, prophecies, etc. What's your opinion on it? Thanks, and keep up the good work everybody <laughs> has debunked him.
3: The yeah, he's,
1: he's like Skepticism 101. All right, you're James Randi
3: debunked him in Flim Flam. Uh, it, the Skeptic
1: Dictionary books. has a very thorough debunking of him on the website. We'll have the link to that. I, th- I found that to be pretty good. So, Edric Casey, uh, who li- died in 1945, uh, was a uh, a trance psychic. You know, he would go into he's called the the sleeping prophet. He would go into these trance like states, and he would just you know spout out random prophecies. And his devoted listeners would write everything down. It was very Nostradamus esque in that you know his, his statements were so vague that they could be applied. To anything but occasionally he would get more specific and whenever he did he would his predictions were completely worthless really wrong
3: like yeah. my favorite is when he said 1933 would be a very good year right it, it really was for for hitler, hitler. <laughs> it's a great year for hitler a yeah, how, how did, did a good our, year for how somebody. Did our friend
2: from alberta who's an active skeptic come up with the idea that the guy's claims had validity
3: well, I think it's that it's it's the sort of thing where he, the guy's been dead for so long that it he's had plenty of time for people to forget all of the failures and remember the successes and blow them up. And if you look on his um, Wikipedia entry, I was just yeah. looking at this earlier today.
2: Uh-huh.
3: I it's it's outrageous. It it was written by a true believer, and this, this is the sort of information that people are getting. Sadly, oh, we have to um, fix that. So yeah actually to all of our listeners go to Wikipedia look up Edgar Casey and uh start
1: editing cuz it it's really bad.
3: <laughs> so and he I still
1: mean, has he still has his devoted followers. That's that's why yeah. that's why it uh, it is as you say. So what, one of, one of my favorite uh predictions of his that did not come true. He predicted that in 1958 the United States would discover some sort of death ray that was used on Atlantis. Yeah,
2: that's right. <laughs> what? What? You're right, exactly. <laughs> a so, somebody, somebody
3: suggested that this was um, supposed to be the invention of a laser, the laser, because, you know, we all have death rays in our yeah. homes, reading well, our CDs and DVDs. I mean, the death ray, okay, but Atlantis?
1: <laughs> Casey was a big uh, fan of Atlantis. He he expanded the mythology of Atlantis tremendously. He's the first one to come up with the 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 energy crystals that Atlanteans somehow use their energy crystals to do stuff. And
3: he claimed to be able to heal people, but he couldn't save at least two of his own family members who died uh, early. I think his brother and he had a newborn son
1: who died. Right. Right. So, so he, not very successful. A lot of his, his followers you know, do a lot of ad hoc justifications for his failures. Like he, he and a dowser predicted that they were going to find buried treasure someplace and they went there and it wasn't there. <laughs> so his followers said, well, yeah, maybe the buried treasure was already dug up. Or, there you go. in the future, there will be buried treasure.
3: <laughs> his sons even wrote a book all about his failed prophecies, attempting to basically talk about what was just beyond his psychic reach. So they tried to actually turn it to their favor somehow. Right. Uh, the thing about Casey, though, he was incredibly prolific in that he did just thousands and thousands of readings. Um,
2: Why not? Yeah, and and
3: I mean more than you could possibly imagine. He spent all of his time doing readings, and so with that vast amount of stuff, he was bound to churn out a few hits, you know. And so, of course, that's what gets passed along and stays with us.
1: I like his uh, his snake oil cures that he recommended. He was the first one, apparently, to recommend laetrile for cancer. Laetrile, mm. that well, that wonder drug that's being suppressed by the evil you know, medical establishment.
3: Isn't it arsenic or something? Cyanide. Cyanide, right.
1: He also uh, would prescribe bed bug juice for dropsy. Dropsy, that, that really you know, <laughs> terrible medical problem that still plagues us today.
4: What the hell is bed
2: bug well, yeah, juice? What's and dropsy? what's dropsy? Yeah, exactly. You know. um, <laughs> what does prescribe mean? Does <laughs> that mean you drop stuff all the time? <laughs> <Tropsy>.
1: <laughs> Don't listen to the anecdotal evidence. We'll give you links to you know, detailed analyses of his so-called prophecies. He didn't do better than any other psychic who has ever lived. Question number two comes from Donovan Dillon. Didn't give his location. Uh, and he writes, after some, some much-deserved praise, he has two <laughs> questions. Question number one, I find that when I tell my girlfriend... That love is nothing more than a series of hormones released, yada, 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 that I don't get as much loving attention as when I keep it as this mystical, wonderful thing. How do you, as skeptics, balance your science and skeptic backgrounds with the world around you that is full of things like Christmas, holidays, love, romance, and all that jazz? Do you take it home with you or leave it at work? Are there things that you keep mystical and don't challenge, or is everything fair game? Let's address this first question before I read the second and
3: question. Donovan, 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 that is so not the way to go about getting Nookie seriously. <laughs> you, you, you don't just say it's a bunch of hormones, you know. Yeah, you don't, to,
4: don't trivialize those things to your girlfriend. Yeah, no. But also, I would disagree with his terminology. I don't see those things as mystical. They're They're not really mystical. You know they. I mean they are. They are and they are explainable. So they're not. Bob. I think that's his
1: point, though. He's saying, as a skeptic, we know these things aren't mystical. But that's not getting me any monkey love. Right. When you pretend that they are mystical, then the women, you know, that loosens them up. See, no. Donovan
3: is going about this the wrong way. He's got to. Donovan, I'm gonna. I'm gonna give you this gift all right grab your pen Here we all are. right something else next go. time <laughs> next time you know you're chilling on the couch with your girlfriend i want you to turn to her and say baby look into your deep blue eyes stimulates the immediate response in my love-related neurophysical systems converging onto widespread regions of the call date
1: that does it every time
3: isn't that much better Baby, you put the dope in dopamine. (laughs) (laughs) dopamine. that's okay. You like that? (laughs) See, uh, see, it's all about the way you present it, Donovan.
1: Something about moaning for serotonin.
0: (laughs) Oh, nice! You could do
2: that. (laughs) Well done. Think of that one. (laughs) I did. I did.
0: Oh, you, you. (laughs) you
4: prepared that one.
2: (laughs)
3: He's been waiting to use that the past (laughs) ten years.
4: Oh
1: man, good one. The way I approach these issues, you know, if you're a hyper reductionist about the, the the state of reality and our existence in the universe, you need, it's all about perspective. You think that we're just this speck of insignificance in this vast, you know, multiverse. It's it, it could be quite depressing. The the fact is, we are humans. Humans are what they are, and there's no nothing wrong with embracing the human condition and human existence. And we we make our own meaning. Whatever, whatever that is. So you might as well, you know, view the world and the universe from a human perspective, and embrace what we are. You know, I love my daughters more than anything in the world. They, I have an an incredible emotional reaction to them in many different ways that only a parent could, another parent could really understand. And I, I know full well that this is an evolved biochemical reaction to induce me to pass my genes on to the next generation and and nothing more but it does and not to, and it,
4: to care for them
1: well yeah to me to to nurture the survival of my my genetic progeny but it doesn't matter it's still it's still those emotions are still just as real to me they're they're just as profound it is part of what's being uh, what it is to be human and just embrace that and enjoy it and live and enjoy your life and you, you, the two things are not incompatible at all, you know. Sex is still sex, regardless of how and why it evolved. It just so I, I don't see the conflict there at all, actually.
2: Right.
0: Well, I you Absolutely. know I think he, he 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 might be coming more from the idea that uh, uh, that he may might be a little too robotic and stiff, and his girlfriend is commenting on that. I think you got to read between the lines here. All
1: right, I'll, I'll I'll say something else. Um, Carl Sagan made a comment once. I can't remember what the what the venue was. That again, if there's anybody who knows how to put awe in science, he did, and he said about his wife, of of all the times and place, you know, all of the the billions of years and all the different you know, the vastness of the of the universe, that you and I came together at the same time, is the greatest joy of my life. I'm, I'm hugely paraphrasing, but that that's how he put it. So he made sort of this notion. Of our place in the universe uh, into a very romantic idea about he and his wife sharing this very very narrow slice of reality together and how wonderful that was for him. So you could do it, man. You could make you could make the scientific skepticism thing work with romance, awe, and wonder. It's you
2: just got to be smooth like Sagan. Be smooth. <laughs> you can't. You, it's like anything else. You can't carry it to an excess. That's all. Rebecca, keep, I just came up with a, came
0: up with a career for you. It's, What's that? incredible um, <laughs> you should become an instructor of romance to your posse <laughs> skeptical
1: romance
3: yeah yeah dating advice no no see it's a good idea though cuz then you know people could write in and and ask me uh, relationship advice and I'll 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 deliver it with a with the scientific skeptic there you spin. go new
1: career for you i like it <laughs> quickly let's go on to his second question his second question uh, is this. On your last episode, you had an interview with a very nice English chap, yes, that was Richard Wiseman, who had done some joint experiments with a woman, and the woman got different results than he did. She explained her varying results as the result of the intention of the observer, that the observer predetermined the outcome, which sounds fairly hokey, I agree. Now, jump over to quantum mechanics. And I am not suggesting that this, at, that, that this proves that the woman wasn't out of her tree, But what are your views on the experiments that have behavior of electrons being influenced by the observer? And he references the double-slit experiments and gives a Wikipedia link. Didn't Um, we actually
3: talk about this when we had Marilyn on? She brought up the quantum.
1: Did she? I I don't think. I mean, this has come up before, I think, but just very quickly to shoot this down. The notion that the observer affects the outcome or that in 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 a quantum way, or that um, reality somehow doesn't exist until an observer observes it, is a really complete misreading of quantum mechanics. And I I was a little surprised that he referenced the double slit experiments rather than some other uh, more recent experiments, which I think are actually hokey. But the double slit experiments, very quickly, if you shine a light through a single slit, you get you know, a pattern, a, just a single um, pattern on the wall. If you, if you shine a light beam through two slits that are, you know, close together, you get an interference pattern. And that, this was the first piece of evidence that light actually behaves
4: like a wave. Because only, only waves can make an interference yeah, pattern. Yeah, an
1: interference pattern that is exactly like, you know, literally waves and water interfering with light. each other. The right. same thing, any waves. These, these happen to be light waves. But prior to this, it was thought that light was basically a particle, which it is. The particle-wave duality of light. Right. So the thing is, though, when you say observer, what that really means, it's not that somebody that the whatever's going on in the mind of the experimenter affects the outcome of the experiment. That's completely not true. All it means is that light is a wave until it has to interact with something, anything. When it interacts with something like the film that you're using to record the pattern of light then that forces it to col- that the probability wave to collapse into an actual particle and then interact with whatever whatever it's interacting with. So that that's the phenomenon that we're talking about in terms of quantum mechanics that fundamental particles exist as a probability wave until they're forced to interact with their environment in any way. And of course it's hard to keep them from interacting, you know, eventually things are going to interact with other things. and and they collapse, whether or not there's any intelligent being present or not, or looking or not looking. So the whole observer phenomenon is a complete misinterpretation of of quantum mechanics.
4: Steve, yeah, the the way I see that, I think there's an emotional appeal for these people to think that you need, you need an intelligence, that an intelligence or a mind is the key factor in, in collapsing the wave functions. And to me, that, that's equivalent you know, to putting you know, humans back on that pedestal that science th- threw us off of a long time ago. And the real cu- culprit, as you said, was, was the decoherence t- which is just the interaction with the environment. You don't need a mind in the loop is the bottom line. That's right. Uh,
1: let's go on to the next email. This one comes from McCartan Cassidy from Heidelberg, Germany. Uh, and he writes... Hi there, I've been listening to the podcast for about 15 episodes now, and I want to let you know that you're doing a great job. The issues are interesting and informative. The panel members are great at debunking the stuff that gets published in the mass and fringe media, and it's an entertaining show. I'm just a bit in the dark on the Rebecca J. animosity, but I guess not all topics need to be analyzed on air. What animosity? Yeah, I think it's just yeah. friendly banter actually. There's never we really love know each uh... other. We all love each other. Huh. For certain Group definitions pod. of the <laughs> word love. Yeah.
3: yeah. Virtual hugs. Don't touch me.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> <It's>...
1: <laughs> As an Irish person who has lived in the US, UK, and now Germany, I would particularly like to hear your thoughts on how different cultural influences dictate credulous belief patterns. A particular example is the intelligent design debate, which seems to be a purely American phenomenon here in Europe. The creationists are regarded as slightly... Barmy, nice word. But it seems that a large proportion of the U.S. population takes it seriously. This is not to say that Europeans are more skeptical. I know plenty of Germans who believe in ghosts and other such nonsense. It's just different nonsense. It would interest me to know if anyone has taken the trouble to map out the regional patterns followed by various religious and superstitions religions and superstitions. I would expect that global acceptance of, say, quantum mechanics is more uniformly distributed throughout the globe than that of Ouija boards, tarot cards, voodoo, ID, etc. No doubt something to do with repeatability. A sober analysis of this data might convince some otherwise credulous people that their beliefs have rather shaky foundations. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Keep up the good work. This is actually a really good idea. What he's basically saying is that if a belief... Is founded on reality, that that belief should exist throughout the scientific world. And the example that he gave was quantum mechanics. Although, as we just were talking about, that's actually (laughs) quantum mechanics is 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 still, I think, poorly understood. But say, you know, pretty much scientists throughout the world accept the fact that DNA is the the molecule that codes for genetic information. There's no pattern to that. Everyone accepts that. But if you go to a uh, a a belief that's not founded in reality, that's founded rather on culture, on, on cultural traditions or cultural beliefs, should follow cultural patterns and not be evenly distributed. That is a very sound hypothesis. and And what he's saying is that, therefore it might be an independent line of debunking evidence, if you will. So let's say you say take something like crop circles and say, is crop circles accepted throughout the world or only in, say, the English-speaking part of the world where you know, cultures that are contiguous with where it originated in England? And in fact that's what you find, as opposed to say legitimate scientific theory which may spread regardless of cultural boundaries.
3: Steve, while I understand what he's proposing, I, I think that when you present it like that, it's going to be misunderstood as an appeal to popularity.
1: But that's I, all right. That I could see how that could be misinterpreted. But that's not what I think McCartan is saying. That's not how I'm, in, I'm, I'm what I'm saying or how I'm interpreting his suggestion. It's not that it's either universally accepted or not universally accepted. It's does it follow a cultural pattern or or not.
3: Right, uh, it, so, I, I understand what you're saying, yeah. but you're also talking about it as a way to inform the public, and that's where I think it kind of runs into problems.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I don't necessarily think, I think that it may be a little on the subtle side as in terms of using it as a mechanism for convincing the public. I, it's an interesting academically, or you know, scientifically, it is to try to explore beliefs. Am I missing
2: something, or what about pseudoscientific beliefs that are universally accepted? How do Give they fit example.
1: in? I, I don't know,
2: UFOs? ghosts?
1: Yeah, but if you look at all of those, those are not examples, and I think it's really interesting. If you look at those but things, even, it's right. hard, it might be hard for us to, to see this you know, kind of have an American-centric you know, view of things, but if, when you look at all those issues like ghosts, ghosts are popular in Europe and in the colonies of Europe, but not in, say, other parts of the world like Asia or Russia or but whatever.
2: But, but there's plenty of people in Asia that believe in ghosts. Yeah, yeah, but, but they, they have mean, but how do they,
4: spirits. How do they manifest themselves? Yeah, they, 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 would they manifest, manifest completely different. They manifest
1: according to cultural traditions, you know. Right. Same thing with UFOs. Also you can follow historically, you could right. you can start with like and I think crop circles is probably the best documented example of this. It started in the UK. And it was just a U.K. phenomenon for a while. And then it spread to other English-speaking worlds. Crop America circles is, is, and Australia. is a much
2: more limited belief. And
1: then it spread to other sort of more contiguous European countries. And it hasn't really penetrated into co- uh, countries that are that are culturally disparate. Now, why would aliens choose to follow a cultural pattern like that when deciding where to start drawing you know, scribbles and in, in, in crops? Uh, same thing as with belief in UFOs it started in one culture and spread to other cultures as opposed to say uh, scientific ideas which sometimes they get sort of discovered at the same time in in different parts of the world you know once once we get to the point where something is ripe for discovery, it may get discovered multiple times or once it gets published you know in the scientific literature and gets replicated, it pretty much becomes broadly accepted so it's it 's I think there's definitely something there. The difference between, you know, beliefs which are generated by evidence and logic versus beliefs which are cultural would follow
2: different patterns. The world is also getting smaller in a technological age where I can now know minutes after something happens in another part of the world I can know about it.
3: It is still, I think, interesting to follow things like if you just focus on aliens, you can trace how our perceptions of aliens have changed over time and in different cultures and how they tend to look a certain way depending upon, yeah, the, you know, the, the current culture. Yeah. yeah, and there there are a lot of interesting things written on that, so
1: I think it's kind of a similar idea.
0: Hey, Steve, do you think that uh, his concept is worthy of a uh, legitimate grant?
1: Well, I think it would be interesting maybe just to pick something, and, and I think this has been done with certain things, again, like crop circles and UFOs, or maybe like pick a few scientific ideas and then try to trace the pattern their pattern of spread and pick a few paranormal ideas and and trace their pattern of spread and see if you could come up with some some differences in these patterns that are that are quantifiable or objectifiable it would be interesting to do because it would be it's like a basically a sociological experiment you
3: know i think there's actually also a problem from the science side because you can look at something like evolution and say well it's not accepted in you know certain communities or um, HIV being uh, right. a virus that leads to AIDS isn't accepted in certain cultures. Therefore, it's not a valid scientific theory, which isn't correct.
1: Yeah, but see, not not the scientific community though. But the the scientific community accepts evolution and HIV is the cause of AIDS. Again, you're looking. You're you're just what you're just looking at is is a popular denial of those sciences, which is just another form of pseudoscience, though.
3: Right. I see what you're saying.
1: Okay. Let's, go on. Let's do one more email, then we'll go on to science or fiction. This one comes from David Shrouda from Pretoria, South Africa. I think this is our second South African email.
4: Does that rhyme with Shrouda?
1: Well, he actually sent a pronunciation yeah. guide. and it, Shrouda is how it's, it's spelled S-C-H-R-O-D-E-R, but he said pronounced
4: S-H-R-O-W-D-A, Shrouda. And everybody guessed that pronunciation.
1: Yeah. Well, it's good that he sent it along. Yeah. And he writes, good day all. I'm a huge fan of your show. I feel I am slowly obtaining a PhD in skepticism. Didn't we just <laughs> <up> talk <with> about that? <laughs> After listening to each episode, I discuss what I have learned with all of my friends and family. So even though you may only have 8,000 or so people downloading your podcast, your information does get out to at least four or five times that many people. Well, I hope so. Uh, first, for your amusement, here is a link to a supposed secret covenant that doctors like you, Steve, supposedly belong to. It is hilarious, but does make me wonder what these imbeciles can possibly come up with next. I'll have the link to that. I'm not going to talk about it. I looked at it. I read through that that link. It, it sounds like a someone with like a paranoid schizophrenia just ranting about this. It really is just nonsense. It's not worth going into in detail. It's just a conspiracy theory, paranoid, you know, stream of consciousness. Uh, On to his question. He, he writes. On a recent episode, you discussed how to deal with family members and friends that are either non-skeptics or firmly believe in a pseudoscience. Thank you for dealing with this issue. Your information was very valuable. Would it be possible for you to share your feelings about skepticism and dealing with skepticism within the workplace and any experiences that you may have had? I work at a reputable book publisher, and one of my tasks is to evaluate new manuscripts that we receive. Sometimes a superior will pass a manuscript on to me and ask for my opinion, and this puts me in a difficult situation when the manuscript I am supposed to evaluate concerns something pseudoscientific. Uh, he writes just skipping down to the end thank you very much for the show and I hope that it will continue for many years to come I will not send a marriage proposal to Rebecca <laughs> but I would like to tell her that I wish that there were more women like her in the world in regards to David <laughs> oh,
2: <China. that's> nice. <laughs> thank nice. you that's nice. very nice
1: <laughs> yeah so I don't, know, I don't know about you guys I mean I certainly do confront this uh, on, a, on a regular basis with your Steve. patients
2: or your colleagues Steve more with
1: patients occasionally with colleagues okay uh, that you know non scientific or non skeptical beliefs sort of creeping into the workplace, and do you you know, how do you deal with that personally in, you know it 's a little, maybe it 's a little bit easier for me than the you know the rank and file skeptic because i 'm kind of out of the closet as a pretty hardened skeptic it 's hard for me to to pretend otherwise. I feel that I have never had to apologize for my staunch defense of science or my stance that especially within the context of, of medicine, that it should be based on sound, solid scholarship and science. So I don't feel I ever have to be apologetic about that. What I do think is that you, just, you should learn how to be pro-science and to state what you, what you believe without being unnecessarily confrontational or critical and definitely avoid any kind of uh, ad hominem or personal attacks. A little diplomacy. Right. Right. Yeah. But you don't have to pretend to, that it's okay with you that that you know that pseudoscience is okay, or that right. you know you could say, "Listen, I I believe in the scientific approach to these things. This is the information that I have. I understand there is a lot of you know sometimes misinformation about this, etc." You could do it in a very non confrontational way, and I think it works out fine.
3: Yeah, I work in an office and I have to pick my battles because you know sometimes. I just can't be the person who constantly says, well, you know, that's crap, right? <laughs> uh, just today I overheard two women in my office talking about um, Airborne, the uh, vitamins that you get that are supposed to cure the common cold, but yeah. they don't actually say that anymore. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And and they were talking about how great it is and how they're going to go buy it. And uh, I'm just like, and you, you know, dove
2: I'm, over there like a gazelle <laughs> and set them straight. Is that right? yeah,
3: I let it go. Okay. <laughs> <That's laughs> I'm like you know, there's really no point to that one. Um, but when the when the email forwards come around, uh, I am always the first to respond to all with the appropriate Snopes link. And right. Um, right. there's a running gag in my office that, that my my word is actually. Um, the word actually is my word because every time uh, we're standing around in a group actually, and somebody says something stupid, I always pop in, actually. It's, um. it's hard not to say that. I find myself <laughs> saying that a Cause lot. Because it's the well. nicest way to start. Well, actually, you'd think that, wouldn't you? But <laughs> and, uh, I, used to be,
0: um, I used to look for the fight a lot more. I find uh, lately that I've just learned to keep my mouth shut Most of the time, because I I found out that most people don't change their minds, that it's very hard to educate people that are true believers.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, if they're really hard true believers, yes. But you know what, Jay? What I found is that... Nobody ever tells you right at that moment that right. they've changed your mind. But what you find is that you've planted a seed of Absolutely. doubt or thought in them. And then down the road, it may even be months later, yep. it germinated, They, they, whatever. You find that you actually had a tremendous influence on their right. beliefs. So the, don't
2: give up because there's no immediate response. Don't repeat yeah. something that you said, and they won't even give you credit for it. Right. It they doesn't they matter. might not even realize that, that it was matter. you
1: that said it. It just became part of their
3: thinking right. about it now.
2: You've given right. them the food for thought.
3: The important thing is to just not become the jerk that everybody doesn't even want to talk to because you're always shooting them down. So so that's why I pick my battles um, because I know that – and it's kind of funny now because when they talk around me, they do kind of watch themselves a little more. And some of them actually have changed their behaviors in that they say, hey, I heard this thing. Oh, you know what? it's probably bunk. You're going to go to Snopes, aren't you? Hold on, let me check. And they'll go and they'll find yeah. out and they'll be like, "Oh, go. yeah, okay." <laughs> so it's kind of funny because they're doing it themselves, but it's mostly because, you know, I'm pretty easygoing about it and I don't right. rub it in their faces when they're wrong, you know.
0: Yeah, you have to be careful because you you could be stepping on someone's amazingly uh, important belief system that they have and you know, David David's situation though, what I what I gleaned out of his um out of his letter to us was that Every once in a while, there might be a situation where, where a book comes across his desk that he really doesn't agree with or he finds flaws in the science. And if I was in his position, I would very much feel compelled to uh, to say something about something that is written down like that, that many, many people are going to digest. I would feel very strongly about you know correcting it, letting my boss know that I'm finding yeah. fault with it.
3: Right. And I I mean it depends on what his job is well, and whether exactly. or not he that's, can afford to lose
2: it. That's what I was thinking, <laughs> Rebecca. And I don't know what his business is. So, what, yeah. I don't know what mechanisms are in place for him to bring these things to light, you know, right. if it's his place that really anybody would listen yeah. and, and how much he needs a job and so forth. You're right.
0: Yeah. Well, I just would I would have a I would have a moral problem with letting um with letting a book go across my desk that I possibly could have prevented if it's filled with pseudoscience. Mm. So Speaking of
3: someone who works in marketing, you get over it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> That's a joke. That was a joke.
0: <laughs> you know what I would also do? Another, another thing I found very entertaining was giving people cold readings. Using, using yes. a, a technique like that as a way of not only entertaining your coworkers and family, but also at the same time educating them, showing them that you can, you can fool them and you're definitely not a psychic. Well, yeah. yeah. The, the one problem with that, though, is that they will believe you are psychic. Some
2: of them <laughs> will, at least. How many? You know, you don't, you don't know your own powers. <laughs> I, yeah,
1: I would, I wouldn't do it to a true believer, but I've, I've done it to people who are just interested and you know not really familiar with what cold reading is, and who were otherwise you know scientific or smart people. And it works. So, you know, you could do very, very simple cold readings, and it's you it, it, it could be very impressive. Like, there's a woman in your life let name begins with the letter M. My girlfriend's name is Mary. Yeah. How did you know that? You know, it's very simple just to do a, to do a quick.
0: It is. It is. Sometimes a quick, quickie demonstration is better than an hour-long lecture. So, it, I yeah. found that as well. I told you that time the girl at work. Um, I was giving her a cold reading. She was buying at hook, line, and sinker, and she's a total true believer. And then I said to her, "And uh, and you never told me about the secret." And she looked at me and went, "How did you know about that?" Oh my <laughs> god! <laughs> yeah. it's that classic. would work on every human on the planet. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> everyone has a secret. It's time
4: for science or fiction.
1: Each week, I come up with. Three science news items or facts. Two genuine, one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. There is a theme for this week. The theme is stem cells. Ah. And actually, I also have four items this week instead of three. So three are genuine and one is fake. Uh, The first one, researchers have restored sight to blind mice by transplanting stem cells into their eyes. Item number two, vaccination with embryonic stem cells has been shown to protect against lung cancer in mice. Item number three, stem cells have been successfully used to reduce the effects of dwarfism by allowing for longer arm and leg bone growth. And item number four, researchers are using autologous stem cell transplants to repair the damage of heart attacks and reduce heart failure. Perry, why don't you go first?
2: Okay. Okay. You know, without being specific, I may have read some of this, and I will simply say that I believe the second one, Steve, was what they do with the lungs?
1: vaccination with embryonic stem cells has been shown to protect against lung cancer in mice
2: okay i'll I'll, I'll go with that one being fake. Uh, the other ones simply sound like more reasonable therapies okay,
4: Bob, all right a heart then, failure that one seems reasonable longer limb. Growth that seems reasonable. Um, one and two, I'm having problems with uh, protecting against lung cancer in mice. Well, first off, I mean, how do you get mice to smoke cigarettes? <laughs> but uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that one. That seems the least likely to me. Okay, Rebecca.
3: Um, yeah, that's that's the way I was leaning leaning to. Um, I hate to go with the crowd, but I'm gonna go with the lung cancer thing as well.
0: Alrighty, Jay. I'll go with the restoring. The, the, no, it was just like they, they made them blind somehow. What, give me a little bit more information. They that's, stabbed that's their I'm little
3: micey towards. eyes out.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, no, it was they did not physically destroy the eyes, but the, uh, they had lost their sight, and then they restored it with by transplanting stem cells. I'm going to go with that wow. one as the false. Okay. Uh, so three you of all, these are true. Wow. Three of these are true. you all agree that uh, using autologous stem cell transplants to repair the damage of heart attacks and reduce heart failure is true, and that is science? That one has been a bit out in the yeah. news. Yeah, yeah, part, that that's, that's the one I, I was, was talking about. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised you've heard about that one. It's also partly why I went to four, but there was just so many stem cell things in the news I wanted to get them all in there. So yes, that's true. And, and uh, what they're doing is basically within a few hours of having a heart attack, they take your Bone marrow and then um, inject it back into you of in the British articles they always call injections jabs stem cell jabs for heart patients <laughs> oh my God wow I never heard that one yeah that's that's what they call it. it's funny that's cool uh, this is still you know basically in this has been human trials now, so um they what have stage some, Steve this is a recruit a hundred patients so that's like a what we call a, probably a phase two trial, uh-huh. which is, you know, you're actually looking for uh, safety and effectiveness, but it's not
4: probably big enough to get FDA approval. Now, Steve, are they, are they seeing a clear improvement or is it kind of borderline? Yeah, well, that, well, we'll see. That's what
1: they're looking for. The earlier studies showed some, you know, some clear improvement. I mean, the, heart, the stem cells become heart cells and they actually improve the contractile force of the heart and reduce yeah, heart I mean, failure afterwards.
4: I, I, so it's… I remember now Pretty an good. article I read about an article, and the uh, the benefits were just amazing. Yeah, you know, n- not borderline at all. Clear, clear pr- improvements, better than anything they've ever. I think seen. it's
1: I think it's going to be one of the early applications of, uh, oh, of stem awesome. cells. Awesome. This Steve, is, are
0: these all embryonic stem cells. These
1: these are not these are not these are um, taken from bone marrow of the of the person themselves. That's what autologous okay. means. So they're not embryonic stem cells. This is being done in Bart's Hospital in London. Let's talk about. Um, the blind mice. This one Shit. is also science. <laughs> <laughs> so the three. Yeah, this is number. Sorry. This was number one. <laughs> no, no the mice for <laughs> the, the three. three, three mice. Mice. Yeah, <laughs> right. blah, blah, I had, I had oh. to say blind <laughs> mice. Uh, <laughs> These are cell transplants, successfully restored vision to mice which had lost their sight, leading to hopes that this could be applied to humans. The so was
0: it the retina? Was it the... What, what, was it? what are we Optic talking about? Uh, they had
1: damage similar to, uh, to retinal damage that is seen in, in certain medical conditions in humans. Mm-hmm. This was published in Nature, which is you know, one of the most prestigious journals in science. And it's a very, very significant study. And this one, they did do. Um, they took cells from three to five day old mice, so not strictly embryonic, but in humans, they prob- that's probably you know, where we would get the source of similar uh, similar cells. And then they injected them into the retinas of uh, of the eye, the mice that had the eye damage, and uh, they they became you know photoreceptors and started
4: and actually functioned
1: that and is improved awesome. improved yeah. incredible. I'm sure the mice Thank were very science. appreciative.
4: <laughs> I mean why isn't Bill Gates putting ten billion dollars into this stuff?
0: Why isn't George Bush putting oh. fifty billion dollars Yeah, in? I don't think oh, it's what? fair to criticize
3: Bill
1: Gates. <laughs>
2: I know. <laughs> Bill's busy feeding the world and you know. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> still still a
1: ways from from human applications, but very, very promising. Very promising. Uh let's go to number three, three next. Three, Stem cells have been specially used to reduce the effects of dwarfism by allowing for longer arm and leg bone growth. That one is fiction. I, I knew you sounded proud. That's fiction, yep. Yeah. Actually, it took me a while. Like The first two or three things I thought of that were fictitious, there was too much published that was too close to it, so I had to drop them because it's, you know, it's being tried in so many different things. But this one, I couldn't find anything about this at all. So this, there's no studies that are looking specifically at this. The problem with dwarfism is that the ends of their bone fuse prematurely, and, and they, they stop growing at that point, and that's it. I mean, at this point, basically the show's over once the, once the ends of the long bones fuse. Uh, you'd really have to get to them before that stage. Well,
4: th- there's, there's mechanical interventions that you could do with uh, yeah. stretching, the, stretching, stretching the, bones the bone, and, stuff, and that, right. And there's some incredible success stories with that. I mean, it's painful and nasty, but of course it yeah. doesn't include stem cells. I think
1: that's called the elizaroff technique. Uh, I'll have to look that up. But, uh, but, nothing, but, no, but no stem cell treatments <laughs> that I could find. Yeah. Which means that number two is also science. Vaccination and embryonic stem cells have been shown to protect against lung cancer in mice. I'm this glad was, I was wrong on that one. Yeah, this is yeah. interesting. It's, a, it's, a, it's a really a different way of, of using these stem cells. Did they give the mice and tiny cigarettes? <laughs> no, they injected them with cancer cells. There
2: you go. That's how, that's that's how you do fun. that. You,
1: <laughs> because that, uh, that's a pretty high probability way of... Giving yeah, laboratory do it. cancer, yeah, yeah just inject. So. and and they they fought off these you know cancer cells if better if they had
4: been vaccinated. Hmm. And in, in twenty years, it will get to uh, human trials, and then we'll know whether it works or not.
1: Right, right. Well, it's, it, it may be a long way off. So you got everybody. Nobody got it right this week. This was a little bit tougher because there were four of them. But and the vaccination one was very unusual, which is what caught, caught my attention with that one.
3: Good job,
0: Steve. Yeah, that was a good one, Steve. That was interesting. I actually liked having four of them. I didn't. Yeah, take it easy with <laughs> that.
4: And that lung cancer is a red herring. I should have realized it.
0: Well, Evan
1: has a quick skeptical puzzle for this this week, So let's, uh, let's, and he, which he recorded for us. So let's hear that now.
4: Perhaps it was Socrates, or Plato, his pupil. One of their theories appeared to be a scruple. Perhaps it was Hippocrates, or maybe by Homer. It may have looked like Philosophy but it was a misnomer. More believers would follow, tolerant and exacting. Such a theory, so shallow, they must have been acting. To the 21st century, this belief still is held. In the face of integrity, it flies unrepelled. So what is it? Uh, As always, we end with a skeptical quote of the week. Uh, I have a quote from Carl Sagan that is very apropos to this podcast. For small creatures such as we, the vastness is bearable only through love.
2: Oh, Amen. Well said. That's good. Well said. <laughs> Thank you, Thanks.
1: Thanks for joining me, everyone. Always a pleasure. Good Thank you. Good Have a good week. Next week, we have Seth Shostak on cool. the show. He's awesome. the SETI guy. He's an awesome guy. Looking forward to interviewing him. Please visit us on the the, uh, the forums. The, the numbers are growing uh, every day, we have new people joining the forums. The discussions there are very lively and interesting, often delve much deeper into some of the topics that we bring up during the show. So, so take a look at it. Please continue. To-
2: Don't forget to write a review for us on iTunes.
1: <laughs> give us, give us your, your kind reviews, if you will. Tell, tell a friend about the podcast. Continue to spread the word. And uh, so keep sending us email. Uh, we appreciate the feedback, both positive and negative. And the questions are always the best part of the show, in my opinion. So keep, keep them coming. Until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to infotheskepticsguide.org. The Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Endless
3: delays.